Welcome to the Church of Mavis radio show. It's Friday night, and uh, it's uh, 7.14 p.m. Central here in Florida. It's been raining for days. It's kind of annoying, but we needed the rain. Luckily, nothing too frightening. Uh, and uh, Jay's supposed to be with us, Jay McNicholas, but he's having some tech issues, so Mercury Retrograde slapping him around a little, I guess, <laughs> in a low-key slap. <laughs> and uh hopefully he'll be with us soon and uh tonight's guest uh, uh madam pamita did i say that correctly yeah Ma- perfectly yeah okay i just wanted to make sure <laughs> and uh your books uh baba yaga's book of witchcraft slavic yeah. magic from the witch of the woods from Llewellyn. yeah there it is right there yeah and, and great to have you here and this is your third book this is my third book, my most recent book. Um, uh, before that, I had a book on candle magic, and before that, a book on tarot. And then I, uh, those are the three published books I have, yeah. And uh, what initially started you on this journey, your spiritual journey? I know you have some uh, family that were into witchcraft, but what can you give us, tell us about a little background, what started everything? Well, I was um, really fortunate to grow up in the magical household. You know, I had a mom that my grandmother practiced healing and my mom did little magical things. I wouldn't say she was real deep into it, but she, um, even though we were raised Catholic, we, you know, my grandmother did, was Catholic and did magic. And I think this is the story of a lot of people who grew up in magical households in the States, you know, and certainly in Ukraine. There's a lot of people who practice magic but are still religious people, devout people. Same thing here. We think about, like, it, you know, in the, in the South, the Appalachian magic, for example, granny magic. We see that hoodoo practitioners in the African-American community. These are all people who are oftentimes church-going people who do magic and what I would call witchcraft. So same thing was happening with my family, but it was Ukrainian magic. And um, my mom would describe, my grandmother just died before I was born. My mom was in her early 20s and my grandmother died. And then um, so my mom would describe these things that my grandmother would do and um you know give me little snippets but there was no context for it you couldn't find a book about it you know even if i think about when i was young it was the 70s and then it was rare you could even find a tarot deck let alone books on magic you had to really search for things like that probably go in the you know back of a a you know magazine find an ad and send off for it and you know that's the kind of thing that would have to happen for a lot of these occult things they were truly occult back then and so um i was always kind of looking around and searching but not coming up i was coming up empty-handed on these practices that my grandmother did until a few years ago i um have a friend katie carpets who has a shop called the witchery she's canadian ukrainian so she um she had some books in her shop and I looked at this book called the word and the wax and it described this practice that my grandmother did which was to heal by pouring beeswax into a bowl of water over someone's head and I said that's what my mom was describing this is the first documented thing I could find in English and this was only you know half a dozen years ago so 
when I discovered that, I realized that there could be more that could be found. And so that, from that little thread that I picked up, which felt like actually so transformative to me to step into like, almost like stepping, Aladdin stepping into the cave of wonders to discover something that you've been searching about for decades. I, I think you can relate to this, you know, you're searching and searching and you find some thread of that, or you find some information about it and you get so excited. And so um, from that, I said, I can write a book about this. Let me find a little more information. And I found some more information. I said, you know, pitched it to my editors. They love the idea. And so then I wrote the book. So that's the story of how the book kind of the inspiration for the book but yeah i grew up in a magical household in other words <laughs> yes so how did you decide to fit baba yaga am i saying that correctly mm -hmm. baba yaga into all of this so in you know in growing up we would hear stories about baba yaga we would say baba yaga in english americans say baba yaga um baba yaga is the russian version of it baba yaha is the Ukrainian version of it. And as you know, probably from the news, Ukrainians, some Ukrainians on the East speak Russian because it was sort of forced on them. Um, Ukrainians in the West, a lot of them speak Ukrainian and Russian. Some speak Russian too. Um, but Baba Yaha is what you would say in Ukrainian. Well, in researching her, I discovered that she, I'll, I'll describe who she is because a lot, of, I thought everybody knew who she was, but not a lot of people know. I had heard of her and seen the little chicken house. Other yeah. <laughs> yeah. So in Slavic um, fairy tales and legends and so on, um, we find this character who shows up again and again. And the way I describe her, she shows up in lots of stories. She's never the main character of the story. She's always like the the antagonist or she's the, you know, the helper. She's never the main character in the story, but she's a witch who lives out in the woods. And she, in doing the research on her, you know, she's this witch that lives out in the woods. She lives in a hut on, that stands on chicken legs. She's very old, crone, not attractive. Um, she kind of resembles the closest thing that we, we all would know would be the witch in Hansel and Gretel. You know, she's going to take the little kids and put them in the oven. Or she might be a little bit like Rumpelstiltskin, a trickster spirit that's going to test you and you know see if you are worthy of having the gift that she has to give. You know, so it's a little bit like those fairy tales that we're more familiar with. Um, so in stories, people hear the hero or the heroine will stumble upon her or go and look for her, and they either have um, one of three experiences: either they have an experience that um, is one where she's an ogre. And she's going to throw them in the oven and she's going to eat them. That can be one experience that um, shows up in the stories. Um, but when, in doing my research, I found that the older stories actually show her as being more ambiguous. She could be nice or she could be mean. Or she could actually be someone who tests the hero and the heroine. And when they pass the test, she gives them some kind of reward, either information or a magical tool or something like that. So... She in in oh she another thing that's an attribute of her that people may come across is that she flies through the air in a giant mortar and pestle. She has a mortar and pestle. She flies through the air or she goes along the ground and she's chasing. You know that's how she moves around and chases people and so on and so forth. So I grew up with this character in my oh there he is. <laughs> Hi, <laughs> he made it. 
About um, time, yeah. My computer's really slow. <laughs> that's all right. You made it. That's what's important. There he is. But okay, we're talking about Baba Yaga and So in in looking at her, she's this sort of um character as we as we started as I started doing more and more research on her, we could see that she's represented as a Russian figure, but that is only because um, Alexander Afanasyev was the first person to document this oral tradition, and he was Russian. So he was going around to Russian peasants and collecting these stories, just like the Grimm brothers collected stories from the German peasants, right? And then created the, the book of the Gr Brothers Grimm. So he, was, he saw their success in Germany, and so he decided to do the same thing in Russia. But what we find is actually the story is not a Russian story. It's pan-Slavic, which means all the Slavic countries have a version of this um, witch that lives in the woods. And so by going in, ethnographers have figured out that she's actually an old spirit that existed in pagan times. And that she was the mother of the woods or the grandmother of the woods. And you would you would make an offering to the spirit and you might get a reward in exchange or at least be protected when you went into the forest. So uh, Slavic spirituality has this um, sort of, if you go back to ancient and shamanic times, you know, really in going back to those times, has this concept that spirits are out there. They exist. They're real. And they may exist on another plane, but meet on our plane. But we want to appease them or we want to ingratiate ourselves to them to make sure that we are protected, that they aren't attacking us or they aren't messing with us. It's a little bit like in um, Celtic, ancient Celtic beliefs, fey folk, good folk, fairies. You know, they, you don't, if you, it, fairies aren't Tinkerbell that are there to do your whim. They are real beings that live in another dimension. And you, they, they have feelings. And if you are disrespectful, they're going to treat you disrespectfully. And if you're respectful, they'll either leave you alone or they'll grant you some kind of boon. So, yeah. It's definitely fascinating. And what's up with the, the chicken house? Oh. So <laughs> the chicken, chicken leg house. house. I know all house. about the chicken house. You do? Uh, from a Dungeons and Dragons point of view, it, it was a... Uh, uh, I knew that was going to come up at some point. It's one of the most uh, uh, unique magic items in the, in the, in the realm. And uh, we encountered it. My, one of my friends did the dungeon uh, of it. It's like the second... Um, like dungeon module they made, but it came out in a few supplements earlier. Uh, but it's, you have to be really powerful characters to even A, enter it, B, survive it, and C, get out alive. Yeah. I yeah. think my character probably died inside of it three or four times. So, yeah. <laughs> how, how long have you been playing Dungeons and Dragons? I used to DM. I haven't played in a long time. And yeah, I miss it and can do it through video games in some level. But it's not the same, but some of them will get pretty close. But how long have you been playing? Well, I played back in AD&D days. That tells you something. So this is back in the, uh, it would have been the 80s. It would have early 80s, 80, before 82. So 80, 81, I started playing with a friend in high school. And then, um, you know, went to college, and so I put it aside. And um, then when my kids, I have two kids, and when they were growing up, and they were about 10, 10, 11 years old, we had a hobby shop here in Santa Monica, 
that had D&D games. And I knew they ran a game. And I, so I sort of checked it out. And I said, ah, why don't you come down and do this? And they were like, we don't know. We don't know. I don't know. What do we don't like? And I go, just try it once. And if you don't like it, we never have to go back again. Well, they, it, trans, it changed their life. <laughs> they loved it. And they are bo- they, they're both now in their 20s. And they run games. And my, my son, he, he, was, he was doing it, running games for little kids as his summer job. He would run games for little kids and charge the parents 20 bucks and run a, you know, run a three-hour game, which is a great deal for a parent. $20, $20 for three hours of babysitting, that's a good deal. So um, yeah. we're a D&D family. So, and we play now, my kids, you know, my one kid's in college and one's at home. So we play For the King. Have you guys checked out For the King? No. Oh, my gosh. Go on Steam. As soon as we're done here, go on Steam and download For the King. It is D&D. It's got, it's like you're, you're, you don't have to do the roles, but everything else is the same. You get to choose where you go. They give you, you don't have to have a dungeon master. There's a dungeon master. It's great. I also play cool. World of Warcraft, too, but this is more like D&D. So it's <laughs> yeah. <really great. laughs> I love Ravenloft. I, that's always was a favorite oh, of mine. Check that out. I gotta that's kind of like that's kind of like Transylvania mm-hmm. Dracula situation. And it's ah. kind of like gothic horror. So there's like Frankenstein and Dracula and kind of stuff like that. They're called different things, but yeah, Ravenloft. Uh, and uh, Jay's hasn't played in a long time, but he reminisces. Well, I got you both beat. I started playing in 1977. The game came out in '74. Um, wow. I, I don't know if it made it in the move, but I just moved to the new house. I don't know if it made it, but I had the original like box set. It had three little like staple pamphlets in it: the DM's guide, magic items, and and like the uh, three halflings, probably right when they were yeah calling, yeah. yeah they were still calling the them basic hobbits, right? <laughs> yeah, it was one that was just Dungeons and Dragons. There's no advanced, no second edition, yep. no first, third, fourth, whatever. Oh my and gosh. the dice that came with it were so pointy. That uh, they, they were sharp. I mean, you could throw them at someone and they would stick in their forehead. So uh, it was dangerous. It was a dangerous game to begin with. But I've been playing since then, and I, all, all through college we played. And the, the, my DM down in college, he's the one that ran the the module with the, the dancing hut. And in that that dungeon, Baba Yaga is not is not present. He's not in it. Just the yeah. hut. Um, and it was the hardest one of the hardest things ever because. And I don't know if this is true about the actual. Slavic version of the hut, but when it's when it's idle, it sits on a, the ground, at least in the Dungeons and Dragons world. And then when it becomes active, it stands up on two chicken legs and then dances around, runs around, and you, you move anywhere. The rooms change configuration every time you get into it. If you, if you leave and come back in, the room you wanted to go back to is no longer where it was. It's somewhere else in the room. And it's it's kind of like the extra dimensional pocket. It's like it's like the TARDIS, like the Doctor Who's TARDIS. It's bigger on the inside then on the outside so um it, we entered it when we were like at level 10th level characters and it's for character level seven to ten and we nearly i mean almost all of us died through it so uh, it's it's not um it's not a fun place but it it it, it definitely brings back all like the hansel and gretel type tales yeah of people encountering witches that want to eat them and it, and I, I thought that might be a good question for you is is bobby yaga the same witch as in the hansel gretel tale well, it's kind of, yeah, I mean, I was saying that for most Americans, they're familiar with Hansel and Gretel because we have a lot of German immigrants here. So that would have come over with German immigrants and, you know, Grimm's tales, Grimm's fairy tales get got translated into English. So those things, um, you know, would be very familiar to us. I find that there's, I would say that there's interesting 
correspondences that are intriguing and may indicate that there's versions of her in a lot of different, even central European countries, Mm -hmm. because she's very Eastern European, very Slavic. You know, we see a lot of close similarities in characters from, uh, you know, Russia, characters from Belarus, Poland, Ukraine. When we get into the Baltic um, countries like Serbia, there's Baba Roga. Now she's a little bit different. She has like a, a rhinoceros horn in her head. So that's one of her attributes. It, other than that, you know, there's like, you know, a 75% crossover and, you know, 25% not crossover. As we go farther into Central Europe, if we look in the Germanic legends and lore, there's someone called Frau Perkta or Frau Berta. Um, Frau Perkta is a, a, just like, to me, she's like the cousin of Baba Yaga. She's very, very similar. And so this idea that there's a crone, that she's old, that she's powerful, that she know, is, knows witchcraft, that the concept of the old witch with the hooked nose really mm-hmm. comes from these characters of Baba Yaga and by extrapolation, Frau Perkta and um, the, the Central European witches, which were crones. But we also see, interestingly, um, in Ukrainian magic in particular, we see witches as beautiful young women who are very seductive as well. Mm -hmm. So that's the other concept of the witch that didn't really, I mean, it doesn't really have this, the sort of widespread understanding. Like if you ask a kid to draw a witch, they're going to draw an old lady with a, you know, pointed hat and a long nose maybe green skin right so they're going to draw someone that's ugly so that's more the dominant um concept of what a witch is but a lot of times in ukrainian stories there's she's young and beautiful and sexy and and, and alluring as well so i think of that but to go back to the house i want to talk about that house for a second because the D &D version of it you know what i found in D D is whoever writes these modules they do their research Mm -hmm. i find um you know i'm looking for these um, these cryptozoological <laughs> spirits, I guess you could call them. Um, and I find these real obscure, interesting Slavic spirits. And then I'll look it up and half the time there's somebody that's added it to a module or made it a monster in D&D. And I'm like, wow, that person, is re- they're really on top of it. They're not just making stuff up like Pokemon. This is stuff that's actually legend and lore and, and has a basis in... Um, folklore, which is so fascinating, it's so good, right? They, they really, they, yeah, they really do. Uh, I mean, uh, e, e. Gary Gygax is the guy who started it in '74 yeah. with Dave Arneson, and uh, the guy last name, guy, his last name is Richie. I forget it. He may also been a Dave, Dave Richie. Also, I'm not sure. Uh, but uh, it doesn't matter what you talk about, whether it's Baba Yaga's hut or just the character of the witch. They have a, a monster in the monster manual as a witch um, that you can write up to whatever. Um, but in the in the lore, they they really look at stuff. I mean, they go way back. So almost every monster has decent um, fictional applications from what is in history, whether yeah. it's a centaur or or a minotaur. Any of the monsters you find in the, are, are well researched, and they yeah. they really did their research on on the Baba Yaga thing because she doesn't make it into the Dungeon Master's Guide, but the the, the hut does. Yeah. So in, in, in the first edition, when they went from Dungeons and Dragons to Advanced Dungeons and Dragons, that first hardback Dungeon Master's book, 
her hut is in there as a, as one of the um, key um, hard to find artifacts. And there's one of them in the universe period. Not, it's not like something you can, like you can find a plus one ring of protection anywhere in the world. There's thousands yeah. of them, but there's one hut and there's one staff of wonders. There's one, you know, uh, hand of Vecna, all these other weird uh, artifacts. Uh, but they also made her so powerful. Um, uh, there, there was, like I said, she was in a supplement, like a little pamphlet thing in, in the original Dungeons and Dragons, and uh, it's called Eldritch Eldritch Wizardry, I think is the pamphlet. Um, she's like a seventh level druid, tenth level something or other. She's like a oh, she's a twelfth level fighter, fifteenth level uh, magic user, and like a twentieth level illusionist. So she's got all. She's really powerful. Just being a fighter at twelfth level, you yeah. can basically take on a full-grown dragon by yourself yeah but uh to be a witch and if she's got witch power she's got illusion power she's got magic use power she's got fighter powers uh you would have to have and at 15th level 20th level you'd have to have a party of 20 people just to even fight that one lady yeah yeah so i know she's amazing. way powerful she's like <laughs> she's overpowered she's, she's, god level. she's god level in the in the dungeon dragons world but she's not in the i don't think she's in any of the deities and demigods types of books no no but she is i did see in some research that she is related to um now you mentioned the polish version is baba yaga she's with it with a j not a y yeah yes yeah. i noticed but I, I did notice that they, they said that she was like the protector of the goddess of, of life and death and the protector of the underworld. So she's kind of like in the middle between life and death. She's not, I didn't get the impression that she's in the underworld, but she protects the barrier between that life and death. She think I really think of her as traversing between the two worlds. And one of the things that is so uh, important about her house is if we go back, I mean, this, this we have to understand that culturally, um, I think if you look at most history, people were mostly illiterate throughout time. It really wasn't until the 19th century that we started making education compulsory and we started educating people that weren't wealthy. Wealthy people were educated. Wealthy people could read and write. If you mm -hmm. were um, either in, you would either have to be part of the clergy, if we go into Europe, you'd, if you would read and write, if you were part of the clergy or if you were the part of the nobility, peasants didn't have time for school. You learned how to farm and that's, you learned to do whatever you needed to do to exist. So for example, my grandparents, my grandparents were illiterate. They didn't learn to read and write because they were peasants in Ukraine, well, which was then Galicia where they were. Mm -hmm. And so if you look at the history of these um, old folkways, they got handed down as an oral tradition. Now, if you look at, the sort of bigger history of what's going on in Eastern Europe from back then up until 988, 988 CE, we have pagan beliefs, pagan beliefs that are akin to Druid beliefs because um, the Celts actually came from originally came from Eastern Central Europe. And then they spread over Eastern Europe and then they migrated over into Scotland and Ireland and Wales. So this tribe of, of people, the Celts, that had a priestly tribe, the Druids, traveled in that way. But they mm -hmm. stayed as well. The area that my family is from, which is now part of Poland, which was its own country, was called Galicia. Galicia, just like Galicia in Spain. It's called Halichna in, in Ukrainian. 
Gaul, Lycia is Gaul, which is Druid. Germany. I mean, Gaul, which is Gaul, which is Gaulish, which is Celtic, right? The Gauls mm. in France and the Gauls and, yep. you know, so on. So this, the practices that existed were very similar to Druidry. People were worshiping in oak groves. They were nature loving. They were pagans. They were worshiping for many, many years and not until more recently with Viking <laughs> influence did they become um, more thinking about a pantheon of gods. Before that, they were working with just the spirits of nature and you just had this, the shaman in. And so you understand that that was the older practice before there was this pantheon of, of gods and, mm-hmm. and demigods. There were spirits that people were working with. So she is so old. She falls into that ancient um, spirit world. Her house the people that lived in that area were Trapillion people. And they have started to find these civilizations of 10,000 people living in communities in 5,000 BC in these areas. They would have communities that were built and um, 10,000 people. So they were like cities, really small cities. You know, they weren't like people just living in caves. Um, They weren't nomadic. They were building something and staying there. The Trapillion culture had... um, the spiritual practice of initiation. This idea of initiation has existed up until really only modern times. Initiation means if you want to be a warrior, you need to be initiated into the warrior, which means you somehow need to prove yourself. You also need to show your uh, willingness. I mean, we still have that when people join the military. You got to go through boot camp. If you don't make it through boot camp, you aren't going to be a soldier, right? Mm-hmm. So this idea that you uh, are initiated into something, uh, whether it's you're going to be a healer, whether it's you're going to be the priest or the priestess, whether you're going to be the soldier, the warrior, you would be initiated into that group. And initiation means you're dying to your old self and being reborn as your new self. So these initiation huts that existed 7,000 years ago were shaped like animals. They would stand on four legs. They would have a doorway that was shaped like the mouth. And the, the shape of the hut would be the totem animal, we would call it, or the symbolic animal of the tribe or the group. So if, you, if we were the wolf clan, then our, our hut would be shaped like a wolf and you would go into the wolf's mouth to be symbolically eaten by the wolf. You, there you would meet your teacher who was going to initiate you, who was going to test you, who was going to see if you were deeply committed to this change, see if you were ready for this change. You know, that's who Baba Yaga is. She lives so, in a so hut the, on chicken the, legs. Yeah. It's a symbology. I mean, it's on the book. Yeah. Um, in, in the D&D version, it's round, but yeah. it's the same basic configuration. What, what, what can we determine? What, what heraldry can we get from the chicken legs? I mean, what, what well, does that mean? The chicken tribe, I guess. Yeah. So, chicken know, power animal. <laughs> chicken powers activate. Well, there's also the, there's, yeah, there's also this idea that I mean, bird bird women and bird goddesses and bird magic is very, very, very ancient. We see it in Greek mythology with the sirens. You are familiar with the sirens, right? They're bird yeah. oh, women yes. that call and sing beautifully, and Odysseus has to. Tie him, have himself tied to the mast so he doesn't fall into the seduction of who they are. That's that's after he forces his crew to stuff their ears with wax so they can't <laughs> yeah. hear. Him. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> so the idea of the bird goddess, the bird woman, or the snake woman, 
she is connected to both of those. And so this hut on chicken legs also has another reference point, which is the idea that this hut moves around is very, very rule breaking. Yeah. Slavic homes were built with a particular format. The, the holy corner was in the east corner of the house. The peach, the stove, was in the north corner or the west corner of the house. The loom was in the east, I don't know, whatever, the north corner and the, and the work area was in the south corner. You had these particular areas of the home that were mapped out according to the directions. And if you had a house that wasn't following those directions, it was like bad luck for the person living there. You would never do it. So here we have someone who kind of just thumbs her nose at convention and says, my house turns around. East, north, south, and west don't mean anything to me. I'll have my house turn around and face whatever direction it wants. In the stories, whenever anyone approaches the house, they have to have the secret password. And the secret password is hut, hut. Turn your back to the forest and your front toward me. If you don't know the magic words, you're not going to get into the initiation hut. So you mm -hmm. first have to have the secret password to get into the initiation hut. Once you get into the initiation hut, she's going to test you. She's going to test you with things that are impossible or seemingly impossible. But you have to be brave, bold, clever, and resourceful. And then you can figure them out. Now, she doesn't give you a puzzle just to give you a puzzle because it amuses her. She's testing you because you're an initiate, right? Mm -hmm. And so when you work with her spirit, in my own experience, and working with her spirit, you, she's going to test you. It's like a coach, though. It's like an Olympic coach who says to you, Jay, Jeffrey, I'm going to take you to the Olympics. You're gonna, you guys are going to get the gold medal. But to do that, you're going to have to come here 15 hours a day and train seven days a week. And you're going to hate that coach and you're going <laughs> to cry and you're going to yeah. be mad and you're going to swear. But in the end, when you get to the Olympics and you get the gold medal, you thank your coach, don't you? Because without that pushing a 15 hour day, seven days a week, you would be probably yeah. not even make the team. Right? I, don't, I don't think I'd have a problem with that, especially if, if it was in either the archery or the, the, uh, the sporting plate, the, uh, the speech, the speech competitions. I, I'm, Making me shoot a shotgun or a bow and arrow for 15 hours a day would be great. I'd still want a day off. On six days, yeah. <laughs> your arms would get still, tired. Yeah, yeah. Give a day off. After. You got some blisters on this finger here. I can tell you. <laughs> I die. So there. <laughs> so I know that uh, each chapter includes a piece of the fairy tale. I'm having trouble. Vaselina. You need to Vaseline. Uh, Vaseline. Just like Vaseline. Vaseline. And that's a collection of fairy tales. So um, there's some really famous fairy tales and there's, there's hundreds, if not thousands of fairy tales that she shows up in. And when I started to write the book, I started thinking, what could I, I need to introduce people to Baba Yaga because I thought I, I naively assumed everyone knew about her, right? Because I knew about her. So everyone does, right? But as I found that people didn't, weren't familiar with her, I said, well, how can I incorporate the, the, who she is and and really get the get a flavor for that I go well I could write a chapter about her but that doesn't really give it enough it didn't seem to give it enough you know so I came up with the idea of 
creating a story that sort of blended a bunch of elements of a lot of her stories, kind of around this framework of one of the famous stories, which is called Vasilisa the Brave or Vasilisa the Wise or Vasilisa the Beautiful or Fair. It goes under different names. Vasilisa is the Russian name. And since I'm writing about Ukrainian, Ukrainian magic, I changed it to the Ukrainian version, which is Vasilina, Vasilina with an N. Um, so this character is a young girl who is really ultimately being initiated into witchcraft and magic. So I took elements from this one, that one, and the other one, and I wove them in because they served to talk about the, the concept that I was talking about. So for example, in the story, she comes to a crossroads and then I have a whole, and she has to make a decision which way to go. And she feels uneasy at the crossroads. This is Vaselina, the little girl. And so then I write about crossroads magic in there. And then in the next part, she meets the forest, um, the forest guy, the master of the forest. And so I talk about him, you know, so I sort of wove these different characters and practices and beliefs and so on into the story. And they came from different stories. So this isn't strictly a story. It's sort of a Frankenstein mishmash of stories put together to sound like one story, you know? Cool. Who, who is this living puppet lady? Does that mean what I remember reading it? Is it like a, it's, she's a deity or like a, what is she? Matanka? Yes, yeah, so a, a puppet um, shows up in a lot of magical practices. In particular, we see it, we see it in African magical practices. We see it in variations of it. We see it show up in Western European magical practices. And the idea is that you have a doll or a, a doll that sometimes, you know, we think of as a voodoo doll, right? You've all seen, yes. we've all seen voodoo dolls in a, in a movie. So yes. that's a very one-dimensional concept, but it gives the shorthand of what a puppet is. It's a doll that represents something else. And in the movies, they take the doll and they're like, oh, I'm going to make him have a toothache and I'm going to stick it in his cheek, right? So that's a very simplistic version of what, a, what puppet magic is. Puppet magic isn't always malevolent. It can be positive. You know, For example, I could take a doll that represents um, a loved one who's living far away. And I might want to do some healing work for that person if they're not feeling well or some blessing work on them at a distance. And so the doll represents the person. We see dolls show up in so many cultural beliefs, ancient, ancient cultural beliefs. Like I said, in, in Africa, in uh, the Katsina dolls that we see in the American Southwest, um, there's lots of dolls that show up in spiritual practices. It's almost like they're, they've been intertwined since the most ancient times. The Venus of Bullendorf, those little figurines that are 40,000 years old, could be seen as these dolls that represent goddesses or people or we, we don't know, right? So the Motanka, which is the Ukrainian doll, has some very unique features, though. Number one, it's not representative of another person. The Motanka is a doll that you create to house your ancestor spirits. It's to give them a temporary home so that they can bless your home. They can protect your home. They can be with you and protect you. They can um, be uh, used, used to remove a, an illness. For example, this is a story of my family and my family. My mom, when she was very young, little girl, preschool age, she got very ill and my grandmother made her a doll. My mom talked about this doll 
And she said, yes, while I was sick, I had this doll that my mom made next to me. And then when I got well, the doll went away. That's the only part of the story that I had. Then when I learned about Motonki, which is the plural of Motonka, um, I learned that these dolls, one of the purposes of these dolls is that you ask the ancestors to take away the illness from the sick person. And then you burn the doll. The, the ancestor spirit leaves the doll and the doll has the disease and you burn the doll. So the disease is like a negative spirit or a negativity is completely destroyed. So that is one of the ways um, that those dolls are used. So they're a little bit different and unique than, than dolls in like a voodoo doll or something like that. Okay. So they're, they have their own, their own use and purpose. Definitely, definitely fascinating. I'm just going through some of them. Lord of the Forest, is that kind of like a Kernanos or Pan type? Lisevic. I think, yeah, the Lisevic, the Lisevic. So the Lisevic is, um, this is the one I really wanted to talk to you about, Jeffrey, because he is what I think is Yeti (laughs) or Sasquatch. Cool. There are so many parallels between the legends of the Yeti and the Sasquatch that parallel the, the forest man, the forest guy. The Lisovic is, Lisovic actually just means forest guy, but he's the master of the forest, right? So he's, a, they, they say, the way they describe them, and tell me if this doesn't sound like a Yeti or a Sasquatch to you. He can be hairy. Sometimes they describe his hair as being mossy or green, or sometimes they describe him as having bark-like skin, right? He's a giant. He's not a, but he's also a shapeshifter. So they'll say he can, you know, he's in his normal state, he's a giant. He blends in with the woods, right? He's a hairy guy. He's male. Um, They describe him as being shy, Um, He's not aggressive. He's just hanging out in the woods and protecting the woods. He's the king of the woods, the master of the woods. Um, They say that he, that they are solitary, but they're more than one of them. There's not just one guy. There's one guy per territory and he hangs out by himself. Um, He hides in the woods. He doesn't, he doesn't, you know, he's shy guy. He doesn't, you know, he isn't aggressive. He isn't chasing after people. He's not a monster. Um, you, and someone who was going into the woods would make an offering to him. So if you know, in like the Carpathian mountains, which is the Western part of Ukraine, very high mountains, beautiful. One of the biggest natural still virgin forests in Europe. It's really one of the last ones, big, big forest, right? Um, if you've ever, gone into a forest it's it's a place that can be so 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 beautiful and also so 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 dangerous right so many dangers there but also so beautiful and what we find is that these spirits that are in these legends that i bring into the book are the same they're absolutely beautiful they can be benevolent they can bring you beautiful things or if they're disrespected they can really screw you up so one of the things that the lisovic will do is if you are not coming in with an offering for him and what an offering could be would be some eggs perhaps a loaf of bread some porridge you would leave something for him and 
tell him I'm leaving this for you. So you're making an offering so that you are protected when you go into the forest. You don't leave an offering. Or if you go into the forest very disrespectfully, making lots of noise, breaking things, leaving trash, swearing in the forest, treating it like it's a joke, he'll start to mess with you. He can call your name and it sounds like you're one of your family members or your friend calling you and you'll go toward that voice and then you'll get lost in the forest. That's or, why I messes with all those dudes <laughs> go out there. <laughs> Let's get us a squatch. That's he has fun with them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I think of this guy as being I mean, he is a shapeshifter. He can go very small, very big. But I I think that these stories that we have they don't spring up out of nowhere. And the fact that we have stories, this is what I always, I come to all of my beliefs with a skepticism, a healthy skepticism. I'm like, hmm, that's interesting, but I need to, you know, see about it, right? Well, when we start to see practices and we start to see beliefs pop up in very diverse areas that really don't have contact with one another, you know, that there's a Yeti and there's a Sasquatch and there's a Lisovic and they all have characteristics that are similar. What does that tell you? There's something worth looking at there. Definitely. So then rather than it being, I think, rather than it being something that's a figment of someone's imagination or a made up thing, right? I'll, I imagine, you know, whatever, whatever, someone saw these things and and talked about them and told the stories of them and there's a lot of stuff with bigfoot like i know a guy named kawani uh, laparitis who i've interviewed he has a good book the sasquatch people he talks about there's different kinds like there's like i guess the regular kind but there's like an ancient ones who are like a race that have been around a long long time and they may even have like some sort of civilization or something like that like they've been around uh, of course, there's weird Bigfoot stuff in the Bible, too. King of Saul and all that stuff. And I've also wondered about the, the pan creatures. Were the satyrs? They're kind of similar, sort exactly. of. So exactly. So there's definitely some similarities, for and sure. And then we find, you know, that what we find is we look culturally in lots of different cultures. We find stories of giants, and we find stories of little people. Leprechauns in Ireland, Menihuni in Hawaii. Did Hawaii and Ireland have contact with one another? Uh, very unlikely, right? It's like yet, Norse and Native American. There's, you know, dwarfs yeah. and little people. There's, exactly. There's... In the in Scandinavian culture, there's the Tomte or the Nise, right? In Ukrainian culture, there's uh, the Domovic, who's the house spirit. Who's the house spirit? He's a little guy. He's a little hairy guy. We have the Bannock, who's out in the sauna, who lives there. We have the Ovenik who lives out in the barn. So there's all these little, little people who inhabit the world, whether you see them and they live in a parallel world, they keep all hidden, who knows? But I think it's, I think that the, the likelihood that ancient cultures had better contact than we think now, uh, there's a lot that's so similar. Um, the the most similar story that I have there's, there's there's a Greek story and then there's and I don't remember which Native American tribe but a Native American tribe it's the exact same story the names have been changed to protect the innocent as it were <laughs> but 
in in Greek history, it's it's Apollo and Zeus, and it's Apollo's uh, seven daughters that Zeus is after, and Zeus gets close to him, so Apollo raises the ground and makes a mountain under them, which I think is Olympus. Um, the daughters climb to the top of the mountain. Zeus gets to the top, and just before he gets to them, Apollo throws them up into the sky, and they become the Pleiades. In the American and Native <laughs> tradition, it's like the great bear chief is is trying to protect his daughters from the great um, sky god or something. I don't remember the name of the, the, the deity, but there's a deity coming after the great chief's daughters. He gets near, he raises up the ground, which becomes Devil's Tower. The great bear chief or great god gets to the top where the bear chief's daughters are, and right before he gets to them, he whisks them away and they become the Pleiades. That is too, too, too specific to be so far away. And when we're talking eight, nine thousand, ten thousand miles from Western America to Greece, yeah, those stories are almost identical except for the names. I mean, that's there's there's got to be more to it than just. Oh, those people never had in contact. Somebody did because those stories have traveled yeah. all across the planet. And like you I, said earlier about the Celts and the Gales, the, you know, they come from Lower Germany, which was used to be called Gaul. And then there was yeah. a place called Galicia, which is Lower Gaul. Yeah. And they went across Europe through France and Spain and Italy and then up to the, the English islands. And then the Scandinavians came from that way. So you, the Irish at the top of, of Europe have all the culture of Central Europe because it it's all cyclical, but they're close. But how do you get a story from Western United States over to Central Greece? It's uh, there's something's there. There's some kind of contact between those peoples. Uh, I don't. It, it can be. Uh, you know, there's so many. It's so many beautiful mysteries that we get to. You know, still have that sense of wonder. You know, like how did those things? These mysteries of these ancient civilizations, and what did people see? So I take these stories that if you imagine okay so you know as i was saying in 988 in comes christianity and when you have a oh, sort of i want to say a top-down hierarchical religion that's being imposed on people they're still going to have their beliefs and practices but they might keep them on the down low so how do you pass on your ancient wisdom and ancient knowledge you encode it into stories then if the, you know, guys who are on your tail are saying, what are you doing still practicing these ways? Oh, no, it's just a fairy story. It's just a fairy tale. We're just telling a story. Mm -hmm. But that's the way that you can find without these, this oral tradition and without these fairy, fairy tales and fables, we would have no clue as to what our ancient ancestors did. And we can tease out the meaning of it when we start to see parallels, when we start to see something like, Oh, 7,000 years ago, people had these huts on standing on legs that represented the totem animal that were initiation huts. And we're seeing that in a story where it's a hut mm -hmm. on where someone goes in for some kind of test, you know? So that's how we get that encoded information. So when we have these stories, these legends that seem like, oh, that's so cute. That's a cute legend. I think there's something to those stories. There's something more than, oh, it's a cute story or a symbolic story. I think there's some grains of real truth in them. Oh, I, I agree. I agree. We, we have what we call still, and we have, we have breaking up a little. Uh oh, he oh, froze. Sorry. Your thumb in your nose. 
Homo, Homo habilis uses the, the most basic tools. It's like a, like a chimpanzee with a stick. They stick a stick into a termite hole or a, a ant hill, and then the ants get stuck on it, and they, that's their basic tool. But they also build basic shelter, like either sod huts or using uh, a, a reclaimed uh, cave as, as, as a house. Then we have a very short gap between them and Homo erectus, who now is building advanced homes, second level, two level homes. Homes, when they're near the water, are on stilts, just like the chicken leg hut. Um, but there's like a thousand year or 10,000 year gap. There's no transition from the simple basic thing to these guys who are now using basically hammers and saws and building two level story homes. The, how does that happen? So, yeah. so there's, we don't know the full history of our, of our, and the same thing it seems with Baba Yaga is that we said earlier, she seems that she's more pulled from various European sources. There isn't just one person, it seems, that is the Baba Yaga. It's, it's a several different, probably regional characters, like you said. And we found the same thing out about, about Vlad, about Dracula. We, we had uh, Dr. Stoker on a few weeks ago, like two weeks ago. And uh, the same thing, because, you know, ancient stories have, like we talked earlier, centaurs, minotaurs, weird monsters, cyclopses, giants, and what have you. But those are all across the planet. Vampires are kind of centrally to, like, mainly Europe and lower Asia. Mm -hmm. But we haven't found an actual real vampire. We haven't found an actual real centaur. But it seems like the, the vampire stories are a, con a conglomeration of, like, several people meld into the one and same with Baba Yaga, but you got the centaurs. Where does that, I mean, how do we get these kind of things? Why do people make up these stories of a, of a witch with a dancing hut? What, what was, was there an original purpose for this? Well, I think of these things, it's interesting because when you say the vampires and we bring vampires into the story, the, um, the Upir with the, with the Upiri or the Upir um, shows up in, um, Ukrainian stories as well. But Upir, which is the same as a vampire, in the name, they would call Upir vampire, but it's also the name of a ghoul. And they had that really show up as someone who was the living dead. I almost want to say, well, it is more like a vampire than a zombie. It's not somebody, you know, but it's somebody who was alive and who died and didn't die a good death or wasn't blessed or something, something went awry at some point. And then they now are able to live forever. Right. But they're living this half dead existence. So that idea of the vampire exists, not in just uh, Romanian culture, but Romanian culture is a Slavic culture. Mm -hmm. So we're going to yeah. have crossover, you know, and in Ukrainian culture, they do talk about Upiri and these, these living dead people that are not living dead zombies, but living dead vampires. Right. So it's a little bit of a cross between the two, you know, mm -hmm. but I think of that, these ideas are based there. I don't think they just spring up out of someone's vivid imagination there's something a kernel of truth in all of them and what is that kernel of truth and that's what people who you know do these this research into the paranormal and 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 unusual things that's what they're discovering and trying to get to right is what's the what's the yeah. kernel of truth you know yeah absolutely i mean uh, it, i i think if we were able to go back in time to like before 
the legend really took place, we might find that creatures like Baba Yaga or sorry, humans, whatever, like Baba Yaga, uh, the reason why we think of them as evil is because they went against the norm. So like they always say that Baba Yaga or the witch in Hansel and Gretel, they eat children. Why? They keep the children away to make the character evil because their ideas and possibly their, maybe their political views don't, don't jive with the current, oh, yeah. you know, oh, yeah. mainstream political views. So I think that's where, that's probably where that comes from is, you know, it's, it's like the boogeyman, you know, but my parents told us, don't ever go into those part of the woods. You don't get killed. Well, what the hell do you think we did as soon as we got away from them? <laughs> we in that part of the woods looking for what's going to kill us. You know, of I mean, you, you don't, you don't tell people, you know, like we've talked about this before on the other show and I said the same thing, you know, you, you tell someone, don't go in that part of the woods, the boogeyman will get you. The kids, as soon as they're not, not supervised, they're going to go in there looking for the boogeyman, <laughs> period. You, you tell them, hey, why don't you go over there and look for the boogeyman? He might kill you. They're not going to go. If you give them permission, <laughs> it's not going to happen. So people back then, I guess, just didn't realize, you know, you can go see Baba Yaga, but she might eat you. Well, I think then, that then they won't go and see her. Yeah, exactly. But I think that the whole concept, what we see, we see this time and time again. It, and I'm going to speak directly to Christianity because that's the dominant religion that came in, right? Mm -hmm. So we have in, we see it in Ireland. I mean, you can draw lots of parallels. We see it in Ireland. We see it in, uh, you know, all throughout Europe. So these gods, goddesses, spirits, if they were benevolent spirits they subsume them and turn them into saints the classic example of that is Bridget Bridget in Ireland was a goddess when Christianity came in they're like uh we'll make her Saint Bridget and you can still you know have your little sacred well and you can have all your things but she's a saint now so they take the existing mm -hmm. practices the existing beliefs the existing gods goddesses spirits and they turn them into saints well, you've got these problematic ones. What do you do with Pan? Pan isn't going to be a saint. No way is Pan going to be a saint. He's he's wild. He's free. He doesn't follow directions. How no. do you turn that into a saint? Oh, okay. So we're going to make him the devil. Now every attribute that's associated with Pan, feet, you know, legs like a, a goat, horns on his head, tail, we're going to describe the devil as that. So he's a devil now. Yeah. And the same thing happened with Baba Yaga. You have a very independent, very powerful, independent, rule-breaking, doesn't give a crap about your rules. You're not going to turn her. She's, there's no way you can turn her into a meek and mild little saint. So then she gets cast as a demon. And that's when we start to see these stories show up where she's an ogre. But, but prior to that, she's, she's not an ogre because nature isn't an ogre. Nature isn't an ogre. Nature can be ambiguous. Nature can be awesome, beautiful, and great, but nature can kill you, right? Mm -hmm. So she's that ambiguous. You can't do anything with an ambiguous being like that. So you turn him into a demon. And then when they turn him into a demon, you're like, well, don't go here. I am Christian church on high. Don't go over there with her. She's bad and evil and will eat you. She's the That's who's turning her into the boogeyman, not the parents. It's the church. So that's why we see this um you know we see this in all cultures where another religion comes in and sort of imposes their belief system and turns evil we see it in propaganda now oh I yeah mean, the propaganda yeah. is now it is, you know, it's not just that i mean they absorb uh, cultural um holidays i mean the, the the christmas holiday was um in egypt times was the birth of osiris 
and you know, so all of that, it's almost every tradition that's in the religion came from another religion or another pagan type of uh, deity. So it, it's, it's amazing. I mean, you, you kind of have to do that. Um, you know, otherwise the, the people that you're trying to conquer with the religion, they're not going to, they're not going to follow suit. They're going to just get in the way. So uh, it makes absolute sense, but it's, it, it sucks. I mean, the, the stuff that I wrote read about her just before the show was that um, she actually would help you if you if she gave you a task and you completed it she would help you either let you go or give you some sort of uh, magic item or something to help you along further in your quest but then it I don't know when the shift was or some paradigm shift and now all of a sudden she lures children to the hut to eat them and we had talked about this on other shows that the, some witches um, use the the fat of newborn babies and to enable themselves to fly, whether they put it on a broom or they bathe in it so that they themselves can fly. So does that, where does that come from? What's, what is the whole thing about eating the children? I mean, why is that? I, I've, I've never understood that. Well, this is also this propaganda. So we're, we're getting into all of the propaganda that the Christian church, the Catholic church during the inquisition um, and during the witch burning, which happened in Western Europe, it didn't happen in Eastern Europe. There wasn't witch burning. Witches mm -hmm. were seen more as a nuisance, if anything, and you were given a slap on the wrist and a fine if you, you know, your, your neighbor's cow's milk dried up. You would get, you know, and they said, you're the witch that did that. They go, okay, you got to pay, buy him a new cow, you know, <laughs> that would be the, the punishment, right? But in Western Europe, we use this as uh, we see this as being done as a real, I would say, a real concerted effort to suppress independence. You have a religion that's based on hierarchy. That's there's a pope at the top, there's priests there, and then the people are at the bottom. That's a real hierarchy. This is mm -hmm. not egalitarian. You have authority figures above you. So the last thing an authority figure wants is a free thinker. The last thing an authority figure wants is somebody who is not going to follow and play by the rules. They want little robots that are going to be fearful and cowed and do exactly what they're told to do. So, I mean, that's how one person can keep many people under control is you, you cannot have rebels, right? You cannot have anybody doing their own thing. Mm -hmm. So this was a systematic way of, wiping out um, and taking power away from people who had power, primarily women, but also some men too, who are cunning men, cunning women, herbalists, healers. We don't want people having their own practices. We want them to follow our practice. So now we're going to destroy anybody who has any gumption, who has any independence. This, a lot of times, I mean, if we look at the witch trials and we go into that whole thing, which is not part of that Eastern European world, but the Western European world, but relates in some way, is that you had a woman who is a widow. She inherits. The only way a woman could own any property is if she was a widow. She wouldn't inherit the property. She would have to get it through marriage and she would have, that's the only way she could get it. And then if her husband died, then she owned the business or she owned the property. Well, that could be a dangerous thing. She doesn't need a man. She doesn't need, you know, she's got her own thing going on. And maybe somebody's jealous of her. Why mm -hmm. did she get that thing? Oh, I'm going to say she's a witch. If I say she's a witch, and there's already this propaganda around that women are powerful and 
can do magic, right? Then I can um, grab that land from her. We see lots and lots of stories of this in, in you know, colonial America. It happened and in Western Europe, it happened where people just were pissed at their neighbor or wanted something that their neighbor had. And so they accused them of, of witchcraft so that they would be killed. So this is the, the, the idea that witches, bur you know, uh, sacrifice babies and, um, you know, use the fat of babies to fly on a broom is purely coming from this, um, uh, I can't think of the name of the book. There's a book that they had, malefic, malefic, I can't think of what it's called right now, but this book that was used by witch hunters to say, okay, these are all the bad things that witches do and we're going to accuse you of doing this and this you know we're going to torture you until you admit to doing it and so on right. so um that's where that all came from that came from no no witch came up with that that was the twisted minds of the people that were trying to um kill the witches and find it's, excuses it, to kill women it's maleficarum that there's there something is. like that I, i've heard the, of it it's yeah. the latin word that begins with maleficarum <laughs> Yes. It's like the two, yes. And it's what the, it's the, so none of the things that all those things are made up by the accusers. They're, they're fantasy. They're twisted mm -hmm. fantasies about what witches do, but what were witches really doing? They were doing herbalism. They were doing a magic with herbs. They were, um, you know, doing, uh, connecting with nature and nature spirits. They were, you know, we could say the shamanic practicer practitioners of their era Perhaps they went into, you know, other trance states and did this, but most of them were just herbalists and midwives, you know? Yeah, and the problem is that the history is always written by whoever is the victor. So if you weren't the winner, you, you yeah. don't get to write in your own history. Uh, but I think it also comes from there, there must be a, a an ancient history that we don't know because uh, prior to probably written language was like five, 6,000 BCE, uh, most societies were matriarchal. And at some point there was some sort of rift where the men took over from the women and created this hatred for women. And it's been going on probably since at least 12,000 BCE or sooner or further back rather. So it is, I don't think it's anyone particular fault, but uh, that's, I think also part of what Jesus's problem was, is he was starting to bring into society that women should be part of politics and banking and real estate and religion. Even, I mean, if you look at the actual painting that Da Vinci did, the person sitting directly to Jesus's right is not a male. It's Mary Magdalene. And there's a lot of people that say that she was married to him. And uh, he was also a, um, what's the Jewish, it was a rabbi. He was a rabbi also to begin with. You cannot be a rabbi in Jewish culture unless you're married. So I think that's where pretty, pretty much where that all comes from. Is that there's, there's history we don't know where women were in charge and then somehow there's a rift and now women are the evil, they're the witch, they're the Baba Yaga. So that's mm -hmm. probably, I mean, I wish we could find that history, but it's probably underneath the Pacific Ocean or the Atlantic somewhere and we'll never find it. Yeah. Well, we find it, some of that in archaeology. I mean, if you look back, as I'm mentioning, the Trapillion culture that was existing in Moldova, Ukraine, and Romania, um, the Trapillion culture had mostly female figurines. I can't even think if there was any male figurines, but the female figurines that were, um, you know, these 
deities, little worship, little spirit houses. I don't, we don't know exactly what they were used for. So we find the, the Venus of Willendorf, goddess of Willendorf, Venus of Willendorf too, which is a 40,000 year old um, little figurine that they found in Germany. And, you know, cave paintings. I mean, we see, we see women showing up in these things. And I think if you look at a culture where um, hunter-gatherer cultures, you know, the, mm -hmm. the gathering, which is probably mostly women, we know that that was mostly women was doing the gathering and mostly men were doing the hunting. But that gathering is what sustained people day to day. Mm -hmm. So they were, you know, they were seen as, as equal partners and valuable to the community. It wasn't like, you know, this hierarchical structure, the community worked together. So it sort of makes sense that you would have, and then also not understanding, you know, because a, a woman gets pregnant and nine months later she has a baby, mm -hmm. you you see her having the baby and the, the man's part of it is that was five minutes, nine months ago. <laughs> you know? yeah. If she was lucky, it was five yeah. minutes, nine months ago. <laughs> but, but so if we go back and, and look at Baba Yaga, uh, not, not counting the new history, that's how we know her as being evil and eating yeah. children and whatnot. What would her role would have been? Would it, like if, if, if she was in my village and I broke my leg, I go to see her. Possibly. I mean, she was definitely the mistress of the forest, the keeper of the forest. So she has some kind of, um, I think in some ways you think of like the Lisa Vuk. The Lisa Vuk is that forest guy who's the sort of the, cryptid guy who might be Sasquatch, might be Yeti, right. right? He He's more of nature than she is. So she straddles that world between nature and humanity. She's not so integrated into the natural world. She has a hut. She has, you know, civilization, but she's removed from civilization. I would see her not as much of the healer, but more of like the keeper of the forest. She's definitely mm -hmm. there in the forest. And she's the initiator. She's the initiator. So she, you would go to her to be initiated as a warrior, or to be and 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 there are lots of stories where she's a warrior. She has an army. She has this, and she's she's a fighter. So the the D and D folks got it right. You, know, whoever wrote that module, got it yeah. right. It sounded sound like she's coming up more like a game warden. Like if I want to go and hunt, I go get a license from her. If I want to go chop down some trees for firewood, I go and see her. Yeah, you'd want to be the writer that grants me a. a certificate to go hunt and, and gather wood and whatnot yeah and if you wanted to be even a better forester she might initiate you in that way test you give you yeah. some challenges and then maybe give you a reward maybe you get a magical uh, tool of some kind that mm -hmm. you know would then help you or protect you or something like that so she's taking you to i mean in in the if her role could be described as like a, i would say she's like a tough initiator who initiates you to higher levels to achieve more than you could think so even in modern day when you work with her if you work with her spirit you're working with someone who's going to put things in your path that are really challenging but if you overcome them you get a great boon i mean there's a great reward i can tell you this book was that for me because this book i had to I, did, I only knew the Ukrainian words for food. That's the only things that we talked about in Ukrainian was food because we had special foods and those are the names of them, right? In mm -hmm. my household, we didn't, when I was growing up, we didn't speak Ukrainian. I had to learn Ukrainian. I had to learn to read Cyrillic. 
I had to, um, I had to like research in another language. I had to learn how to look for doctoral theses and find these ethnographer articles. And I mean, it was, and I had to take footnotes and find footnotes and, and it was the most insane book project I ever had to work on. It was like a, a hardcore doctoral thesis is what so this you is. You had to learn Ukrainian just to write this book. Yeah, because I had to find the information in Ukrainian because it wasn't in English. Right, yeah. So I had to like learn how to research in two languages, one of which I had to learn. So you can imagine that if I had, if someone said you have to do this, this, and this to do this book, I would never have done it. I would have right. gone, that's beyond me. But so once I got into to, it. From start to finish, finish product, how long does it take to get to this this product right here? So I started this book in 2019, the seeds of the book, and I started the pitch for the book in 2019. I wrote it all through COVID, which was like the perfect yeah. time. I was working 12 hours a day at home, just yeah. writing and researching and finding and organizing information. I mean, I had a document that had at one point 300,000 words, and this is, I think, 90,000 words or 100,000 words. So this is like, I had so much, a massive amounts of work to do, but it was perfect thing to do when we're in quarantine, right? We're all hiding out. Mm -hmm. So um, I mean, I was working on the forefront there. <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I work at a home, a home improvement center. So I was on the battlefront. In, oh my uh, gosh. When two years. I haven't gotten it. So, I mean, amazing. I had a knock exactly. on my wooden desk. <laughs> so, um, so in doing that book, I mean, it was really a har amazingly hard, difficult task. And there were times I just wanted to give up. I was yeah. crying. At times I'm like, I can't do this anymore. I'm so sick of this. I can't do it. But then I pushed through. And as a result, look at the, the to me, the great blessing of this book. It came out right at the time when people became aware of Ukraine. Yeah. Right at the time when people are interested in Ukraine. The timing of it could not have been more impeccable. But how would I have known that timing? It yeah, was two really. years ahead of that time that I started working, three, two and a half years ahead of that time yeah. that I started working on this book. It was I've actually, I've actually been interested year. in Ukraine for longer. When I was yeah. really young, my mom started, she made um, chicken Kiev, which I thought yeah. was fantastic. Um, and I've always wanted to go to the country to see particularly Kiev and get chicken Kiev in Kiev. Yeah. I, think call, I think I call it Kiev. Kiev, yeah, Kiev. I've been hearing all the stories on the Ukrainian war, and then all these Americans are going, "Yeah, back in the capital city of Kiev." I'm like, "It's Kiev, you moron!" But you know, I don't know. I don't know which one is right. But I want to see Odessa. I want to in the the, the Black Sea. Um, I would love to go see that whole country. But uh, I've, I've also looked at some of the Ukrainian. There's a lot of them. Ukrainian uh, bridal websites. The women are so pretty. I mean, there isn't an ugly girl, even if she's 70 years old. There, there are women, no, I'm trying to be funny. There's ladies over there that are in their 60s and 70s that look like they're 40s and 50s. Yeah. And you got these girls that are in their you know 20s and 30s. They look like they're 12 year old supermodels. They're yeah, supermodels. 12 year old looking supermodels. It's like it's the, the most beautiful people on the planet. So it's a shame what's going on over there. But yeah, uh, this book hopefully brings some light onto the people and we can get Putin the hell out of there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's really hey, a shame. Yeah. Hey, hey, Jay, can you hear that noise right now? No, no, you don't. You're okay now. There's nothing coming know. up with your voice. Just, if you hear it, let me know. So I have a window yeah. AC that may be part of it, but it, you said that's you just probably what it briefly. was. Yeah. Well, it's still going, but if you hear it for some reason, it sounds too crappy. Let me know, and I'll turn it down. But All right. so I know uh, you you talked about angels some to me before the show. 
what is that one of your interests or someone you work with angels or not so much, but I, you know, you were talking about light beings and we were talking earlier. I mean, this is off topic from my book, but um, that idea that there's this big jump in technology for humanity around, um, you know, 5,000 years ago, or uh, sorry, 7,000 years ago, there's this big jump around 5,000 BCE. And we see descriptions of things in the Bible that sound, they describe them as angels. But when you look at Ezekiel's wheel and you look at it in context of like <coughs> interstellar, you know, visitors, right? Yes. You can start to see that this, these ideas that, you know, it, it really goes back to what we, uh, what I learned about in the seventies, like chariots of the gods, right? These ideas that these gods, these beings, these light beings come and visit from the sky, and could they be, could they be, you know, people from another dimension, another time, another planet, another what, you know? But that the the interesting jump in technology that occurs at that moment in time, like a huge leap of technology like you said they were living in caves and then all of a sudden they're living in two-story houses and building pyramids i mean how does that happen yeah that, right? that's one of them and the other one the, the shocker one and now jojo sukos who started the uh, ancient aliens tv show which is fantastic he's gotten that knowledge up to a lot a lot more people uh he's convinced that the anunnaki stands for that that word anunnaki stands for those who from the heavens came down upon the earth and it's not. And what research I've done on it is that it is uh, the chief god is named Anu, and his two sons are in charge of Earth, Enki and Enlil. And Anu Naki is of the sons of Anu. Talking about Enlil and Enki, the original. So Enlil and Enki are, if you read the Bible, it sounds like you're talking about two different gods. There's one god that wants to destroy the all of humanity, and there's the other one that's like, yeah, you know what, let's just, let's kill let's do some of them and save this one guy, his family, Noah, and whatever. That sounds like two different people, Enlil and Enki. But the Sumerians wrote this, came up with this language, wrote written language, you know, cuneiform or cuneiform, depending on how you want to say it, it's cuneiform or cuneiform. And only certain, like you said earlier, only certain people could read and write back then, before cuneiform, nobody could, but after cuneiform, only like the people who invented the language and the nobles could read it. But they make this story about the Anunnaki, the sons of Anu, coming down to Earth from another planet and genetically modifying humans to do their bidding. These guys invented, you don't just invent like language and then you send out Star Wars books to everybody, which is basically <laughs> what they did. They wrote the Star Wars novel for people who don't even know how to read. So that's that's a one compelling thing. And then you look at just, just starting at the 19th, exactly 19th century, flipping over to the 20th century, you've got in the 1900s, what's the first thing that, that's, that's happened? It's really good. We have the plane. Right, brothers, 1904. Five years after that, 1909, you've got the, an actual functional gas turbine car that, that run on gasoline. And then uh, a few years after that, you've got cars being made on a by Ford on a platform where they different people do specific jobs and they make the car. You have the plane in 1904. 1944, you got jet power by the Germans. 40 years. Something's off in that time scale. Just in that, just in those 50 years right there, 1900 to 1950, 
Something's off. We, we not only have cars, trains, we have uh, nuclear power. We drop a nuclear bomb, two nuclear bombs on a, on a country to stop them from fighting. All in 50 years. Go back 2,500 years. Go back to 2,500 BCE. You've got the Egyptians who allegedly built the pyramids without the technology to build the pyramids. It's physically impossible for the fourth dynasty of Egypt to have built the, the pyramids that we're all supposed to believe that they did because they're the ones who discovered them. Something is way off from not just the 1900s, but from 6,500 BCE till today. Some, there's a big, big chunk of history missing in that 18,000 it, time. It's just fascinating Man. that you think about, and then you look at what was happening in Egypt at that time and different cultures around the world that were, they were so much more advanced. Mm -hmm. Like that area, Sumer, Egypt, all this stuff happens in an instant and we have written documentation of it which is which is huge that's huge mm -hmm. written language is huge because it means that unlike Dru the druid practices that were never written down they were memorized and carried mm -hmm. on as an oral tradition we don't we don't know we only know what the romans reported or in the case of the the ancient slavic pagans what the greeks reported because they weren't writing it down either so when you start to have your own documentation of these things too, that is absolutely huge because we can see then something's up. And you know too that the Bible is based on the Sumerian myths and the Babylonian myths, it's, Gilgamesh and so on. That almost the entire Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, are almost word Plagiarized. for word, <laughs> the same as the Enuma Elish. It's it's, it's yeah. almost the only difference is that, like I said before, the names have been changed to protect the innocent. Yeah. You know, in, in the Bible, you've got Noah is the only is the sole survivor of a flood. In the Enuma Elish, there are three. Uh, one of the names is the Usudra, and then there's like two others. There's like three or four different people in the Sumerian tradition that survived the flood. So, I mean, it, there's, like you said, there's there's a kernel of truth in those stories. We just need to find the entire story. Yeah, I think it's fascinating. I'm not, I'm, you know, some people, I have lots of friends that are very interested in, um, life on other planets and it, what do you want to call it? extraterrestrial visitors and things like that. I haven't seen any and it's intriguing to me in a sort of distant way. I'm more, I'm like, that's to me macrocosm stuff. And I'm more interested in microcosm, mm -hmm. like looking at what's here on earth and the odd things that happen in our material world here as well, mm -hmm. you know? So, I mean, Jeffrey, you've seen, you've seen light beings. You were talking to them before we went on the air about seeing light beings. Yes, definitely. And, uh, that's definitely, uh, they could be in the angel or, you know, uh, alien category. I know there's a, an author already, uh, six killer Clark. She has a, some books, uh, sky people and star people, Native American uh, encounters, and she talks about there's a race of alien light beings that somewhere in a story put up their handprint on a rock in the desert. And they're supposed to return, uh, but it's a pretty. She's a pretty interesting author that's been on the show. Uh, it's definitely uh, fascinating. Is there anything in any of the that you've come across either in your book or? Uh, and with Slavic stuff where it seems like they may be alien-like. I know with fairy lore, there's stuff like the 
when they get taken to Avalon and there's some, some of that's kind of similar to the alien abduction kind of stuff. Is there any kind of creature that seems like that at all or anything? Well, I mean, there's not in particular that I can think of, but they do have things of flying and going to the thrice. It's, there's some place called the thrice nine kingdom. So thrice meaning three times thrice nine kingdom or the thrice 10 kingdom. kingdom. Yeah, so it's this idea that, that you go off into this land that um, doesn't exist in this reality, and that's where you're going to find your magical uh, whatever object or your person that's missing or whatever. And to get to the Thrice Nine Kingdom, you usually have to fly to get there. So you're either flying on a magic horse or you're flying in a mortar and pestle with Baba Yaga or you're... Um, flying on a carpet or you're flying in some way to get there. And that to me has that echo of like, they didn't have things that could fly. Birds could fly, but they didn't have any kind of vehicles that could fly. So it could be technology that came from, you know, extraterrestrials that, that they were witnessing in some way or someone experienced, someone was abducted and they were taken to some magical place and then brought back. I mean, Sounds that's, like aliens to me. Yeah, <laughs> I mean it, that's the that's where we start to talk about there. They have a the, the thrice ten kingdom where you go to the um, mountain of copper, the mountain of silver, and the mountain of gold. Or you you know, so I think of these things that are very allegorical, very symbolic. But where do they come from? It's not, I don't think it's someone's pure imagination. I think there's some sort of basis in that. So what, yes. what could be a mount? I mean, if imagine a mountain of copper, silver, and gold that could be taken to another, another planet and there are structures that are there that are made out of metallic material, right? Yes. You know, so that could be a possibility there. Is there anything that's, would you is consider evil or parasitical in any of these type beings at all that comes to mind? Um, not in particular in what I'm talking about in my book, but there are lots and lots and lots and lots of beliefs about curses, lots of beliefs about curses. And so it's not really an entity so much as an idea that it's, you're very vulnerable in this world to negativity in general, whether that negativity is someone having a jealous glance and looking at you with envy, which can cause you problems, or someone's actively cursing you. Um, so a lot of the practices, a lot of the practices are about protection from the the sort of negativity out there. So starting in chapter one, I talk about embroidery. And if you've noticed and seen in Ukraine, a lot of people wearing embroidered shirts, right? Yeah. <laughs> Those shirts are called Vishivanki. And Vishivanki um, are worn as protective talismans. This cool. isn't just a beautiful decorated shirt. It's beautiful. It's decorated. Like a ghost it's, shirt or it's something. It's a shirt to protect you specifically from evil and to bring you blessings. So nice. each of the symbols that are embroidered on there have a specific intention or meaning. So like a square uh, or a diamond shape would represent uh, a field and fertility. So that could bring blessings of abundance or, you know, healthy family and so on to your, your home. Um, you know, you might see a little uh, zigzaggy kind of maze shape. 
that's um, that's called a creepy tenets. It's called the um, circle dance. And the re- reason for that is that evil will get caught in that labyrinth in that maze and won't be able to make it to you. So it's a way of capturing um, any any evil spirits or anything like that. People are also very vulnerable from from things. There's vulnerable places, liminal places. And now you guys know about liminality. So liminal places, which are, and liminal times are seen as exceptionally vulnerable places and times. A liminal place could be the crossroads, for example. Crossroads is, uh, it's neither here nor there, right? It could go this way or that way. So you're in this in-between state when you're standing at a crossroads and you're vulnerable to a possible attacks by negativity. But it's also the place where you can leave negativity and one of the really unique practices, we see, we see crossroads practices showing up in lots of different systems in Africa, in, um, in hoodoo, in African-American hoodoo, and in Celtic lore. We see crossroads practices, Greek mythology. Working at the crossroads is seen as a magical place. But one unique thing about Slavic magic is it's a place where you can leave your negativity behind. So let's say you have an illness or um, misfortune of some kind. If you take money or something valuable and you do a little ritual with it, and then you take that valuable item, that $20 bill, that, that watch or that necklace, and you leave it at a crossroads, whoever picks it up is going to take your negativity, going to take on that negativity. So there's huge, huge warnings about not picking up things when you find something valuable at a crossroads, because in the Slavic world, it would be understood that that Money is meant for the spirits and it's not meant for you. So if you find that, that bill, that large bill in the, in the center of a crossroads, leave it alone because it's got a curse attached to it. Mm. Right. So what are things that you do to protect yourself? Because uh, lately I've, we've been having trouble with sleep and it just seems like there's a lot of crap in there or something that just seems yeah. been hit by a bus lately or something. Oh but yeah. what do you do to protect yourself and to, you know, deal with negative energy and when you're feeling down or whatever? Well, a lot of it is cleansing away the negativity and there's lots of methods for doing that. You can cleanse, You don't have to give your negativity to someone else. I mean, that's one way of working. And if you have something and it doesn't bother your ethics to do that, then go to town, right? <laughs> um, but for me, I think of the, my first line of defense is um, working with fumigation. So fumigation, um, sometimes called smudging. Smudging is the Native American term for it, but we call it fumigation or, or sensing. In Ukrainian, it's obkuryuvanya. Um, obkuryuvanya is to um, burn herbs to cleanse a space, right? You can burn lots of things besides herbs. You can burn eggshells. Eggs are super magical in, in Slavic practices. But one of my favorites to burn is juniper. So juniper, easy Jun- to get. Yeah, it's everywhere. You can get it, you know. We have it here in California. You have it in Florida. You have it everywhere. You know, yeah, you go it goes here. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So um, you get a juniper bundle and you dry it out and you can tie it together. And then you can light that, you know, snuff the flame out and you'll have some smoke. And using that smoke, you can smoke yourself. You can smoke a room and you can really cleanse a space of all negativity. Then you want to prevent negativity from coming around your home. 
So one of the ways of doing that is to get poppy seeds, you know, poppy seeds, just like the ones, you know, on your poppy seed bagel, teeny tiny little seeds, right? So one of the, the tricks is that poppy seeds are irresistible to ill-wishers, people that are malevolent, people that have bad interests in, you know, in you, right? So you could take and sprinkle this around inside your home and let it get into the cracks of the floor, things like that, or outside of your home. And when you sprinkle the poppy seeds around, any ill-wisher will have to stay and count all the poppy seeds before they can get into your home. So it keeps them occupied. It attacks their OCD. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So um, those are a couple of little techniques. I mean, wearing, um, wearing necklaces, um, there's like charm necklaces, charm jewelry, um, embroidered clothing, of course, is another thing I wear often wear embroidered clothing. I'm not today, but um, I often wear necklaces. I often wear charms, things like that as well. Yeah. Jay, do you have anything else you want to ask? Yes. Um, so we've already talked a little bit about Baba Yaga in pop culture, mainly Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, and I'm sure you're aware of this, but there are two musical suites where she's mentioned uh, pictures at an exhibition by Musorgsky and Emerson Lake and Palmer did that. It took those songs in their own style and translated them from the orchestra to the, to the rock and roll band. Um, and then I, I kind of listen and that I, I love ELP. I don't know how, I don't know if I'm much, I know much more about Musorgsky than, than anyone else, but uh, I love ELP's music, the progressive rock kind of thing. And I, I didn't really care for the, the, the song, the curse and hut of Baba Yaga. Um, it, it sounded a lot like this song, Carnival 9, which is like a 30-minute suite. But uh, what other pop culture areas do we find Baba Yaga? I mean, besides your book, the music I mentioned in the Dungeon Dragons, where else does she pop up in pop culture? I well, mean, the, in Europe. there's some video games coming out recently. I mean, I think she's having kind of a little bit of a moment in the last maybe five, six years. Um, I've seen a couple video games that have that feature her. Um, so that, you know, relates sort of to the D and D as well, but, um, there's a couple games coming up once there's a, there's a, a game that I think is on, um, iOS and, um, uh, Nintendo switch called Yaga that is, um, based on that. And then there's another one, which is called the black, the black something. And it's, a a, a like a Sony platform game. One of those, I don't have, my kids have a PlayStation. I don't have any of that stuff, but, um, but there's a couple of games that are coming out. Um, there's a, not Baba Yaga, but there's a uh, animated cartoon, very Disney like animated cartoon called Mavka. And it's about um, Mavka is a forest spirit. It's, um, it's totally Slavic. That is another thing that's, um, up and it and it touches on all of that. Um, we sort of see her popping up in literature. There's lots of books. There's a book called Ask Baba Yaga, where someone has so brilliantly has done like a Dear Abby column with Baba right. Yaga answering, <laughs> basically answering your your questions about life. Um, so there's lots of things where she's sort of popping up. I mean, another one is John Wick, you know, but that's a big mistake. That wasn't, a, it wasn't an intentional thing. You know about that, right? 
So in John Wick? I've seen the first two. I haven't seen the third one yet. Okay. I don't know which one it is. I don't watch those kind of movies, but. They're um, pretty good, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, so, Keanu, and I like Keanu Reeves. I should watch them. But um, Keanu Reeves is, his character gets called Baba Yaga. But I think that the, yeah. the writers meant to call him something else, like a boogeyman. But yeah. they ended up calling him Baba Yaga. And I don't think they knew what, that Baba Yaga was an old woman. Which, yeah, that's, that's you know. right. Isn't there? Because the first two, he fights a couple of Russian uh, gangsters. Uh, and the, well, the first one is Russian. He fights the Russian, this Russian gang in New York that broke into his house and stole his car and killed his puppy. So he goes off on him and he destroys them all, which is it's a pretty powerful story, that one. And then the second one, it's the father of the son from the first movie coming back after him and they both go in Russian they say you Bobby Yaga and he's like he's like some boogeyman yeah um, but, but Bobby Yaga is not a boogeyman it's a wit it's a witch so I think they made a mistake yeah. and they were looking for a different oh, word yeah but you, <laughs> so. you also you also mentioned tri the tripillion I'm going to spell that wrong tripillion yeah tripillion culture is there, there's there also there's I think it's Serbia there's a place called Tripulia and in that story with uh, uh, Liam Neeson of the Taken movies, the first two, he fights a bunch of Serbian uh, gangsters who have taken his daughter for a sex trade. He fights them, kills them, and then the second movie is the father coming back to make revenge on the son, and they're from Tripulia, Serbia, and there's like, he makes they make it the same that the whole city of Tripulia is all these like gruff, bad gangster guys who will chop your arms off at any moment just because you looked at them funny. Yeah, um, yeah. So yeah, it's, there's there's some pretty bad lore out there with uh, with Hollywood. They tend to make mistakes quite a bit. They're good <laughs> with some things, but they don't always get it right. D and D gets it more right than Hollywood, that's for sure. As I look at, I mean, that's what was kind of ex uh, made me very excited because I do love D and D and seeing um, how accurately the character that I was researching from a folklore standpoint were represented in in the game mm -hmm. and how you know they're it's definitely like a short paragraph of each one it's not like you're not going into like long lore about it but to find these things and to find like you know some odd creature like the the Lisovuk in in that is to go like oh my gosh they actually got it right you know it's like this you know they got the features of them right so the, whoever's doing those things is really interested in in lore and is looking at it and not just making up stuff like pokemon you know they're not just made up things they're really they're, actually they do a really good job i mean yeah i, I thought the same thing was going to happen i've seen the movies uh but almost every time when someone brings in a legendary creature an elf a dwarf whatever they put their own spin on it the same with vampires. I mean, they're all throughout Hollywood. Vampires have become more and more powerful because Hollywood's like, well, we need them to fly. Well, we'll make them fly. We need them to have laser eyes. Well, let's give them laser eyes. So they do that with some things. But Dungeon, the guys who did, the guys who started the core of Dungeons and Dragons, uh, I think Gygax was from Switzerland or Sweden, one of those two countries. And so whatever he did to start that company, which is now Wizards of the Coast or now owned by Wizards of the Coast, yeah. he ingrained in them that he you do it right the first time you don't have to go back and fix it yeah so yeah. I mean, you look look at anything else look at star trek the, the first show was fantastic but then there's all these new things we've learned about about science and space and whatnot so they have to go back and retcon and fix things or they have to add things in future shows so, oh well this is why that happened because 
we just didn't know we were idiots. <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah. No, but I love that. I mean, that's something that really uh, always impresses me. And I think that it's a way, you know, the, this resurgence that we've seen with D and D because of stranger things and all of that has been so delightful, so delightful to see that kids are getting into that creativity. I mean, it really, instead of just passively receiving something, they're creating stuff and then participating mm -hmm. in stuff. And I think all of these things, if you look at role-playing games, LARPing, all of these things have correspondences that go back thousands of mm -hmm. years, thousands of years. People were sitting around a fire telling a story and, and altering the story and including the, the people that were around them in the story or, or acting things out in, you know, in dr dramatic ways and practicing, you know, things. I mean, it just, I think of these things being so part of our human experience and it delights me that, um, you know, it didn't fall away when, when technology came in, but in fact had a great resurgence, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a lot harder to envision what's happening as a dungeon master is describing to you what's happening rather than playing a board game. You, you play any board game, what, what's going to happen in the board game is on the board. There are pictures and, you know, you move your piece around the board and yada, yada. You're not using your brain. You just, I'll roll a dice, I spin a wheel, I pick up sticks, whatever it is that makes my piece move across the board. And hopefully you, win, you get enough points to win the game. Dungeons and Dragons, there's no points. Mm -hmm. You either die or you move. You can move on to the next module next week, next month, whatever your game schedule is. Uh, they used to call me the tissue, the, the Kleenex tissue box of characters because my character would die almost every session. <laughs> and some you it, don't go too attached to your character. Oh no, I never did. I, mean, I have a couple that I have a couple that survived. They were killed several times that yeah, survived that I keep as, that I'm going to use as NPCs later on if I ever start playing again. But you, you got to use the creative side of your brain to play that because yeah. you're, you're envisioning what someone else is telling you, and you got to imagine, oh, Jay, show you, Jay. Oh, <gasps> oh beautiful, Charlotte May. <laughs> yeah, she's, she's got a little wild side to her. Black kitties are awesome. Oh, be careful. <laughs> oh, trying to be careful so cute. oh my gosh i have i'm a cat person i have two cats i got three no just got her recently cat guys are the best guys you guys cat yep. guys are the best guys <laughs> so is, you gonna teach the cat to ride on the pig <laughs> i know there's a mini pig here and <laughs> uh, it ain't so many no more <laughs> that's the problem with those mini pigs they're not always mini for yeah very the guy said it was but i don't think it's like a normal it's not gonna get crazy crazy but it's still <laughs> pretty plumped <laughs> that's all they care about is eating that's to so a funny. point of obsessiveness <laughs> but uh was there any other cryptids that you want to recall or was it the bigfoot or was there anything else well there's that's the main one that i think out in nature there's definitely um there's the rusalki we didn't even talk about those the rusalki are the um the water spirits and the vodinik vodinik is the um deep water spirits so the the rusalki are what they call mermaids but they're not mermaids like we think of them they're, they've got legs, so they're not, they look like regular women, but they live in the water. So they live in fresh water, springs, rivers, ponds, and so forth. In the wintertime, they're under the ice. They don't come out. When the ice melts and the spring comes, they start coming out onto the land. 
and they have to carry a comb with them. So there's some similarities with mermaid lore because they carry combs and they comb their beautiful hair. They're beautiful young women. They're either nude or they're very, you know, thin little wet shift, wet t-shirt. <laughs> and they're these beautiful young women that come out of the water. They come and fertilize the land. And so at when you're not looking, they would come out and they would come to the rye fields and they would uh, dance and sing and play and giggle and laugh and have fun. And that was to make the rye fields really beautiful and lush and fertile. And then they would go back into the water at the end of June. They go back into the water at summer solstice. We'd say at summer solstice, they go back into the water, but they, um, they have a reputation of, you know, again, so when Christianity comes in, oh, we're going to make them dangerous. They are ambiguous. You know, it's just like water. Water can drown you, but also water can be delightful, right? So you have to be respectful. Um, you can make offerings to them. They love cloth. They love yarn. Anything to do with spinning, weaving, clothing, they love. And um, you would leave that for them on the trees that overhang the, um, the river or the pond. Um, but... If you, you have to be careful around them because they can be very alluring and enticing and they can lure you into the water and then tickle you to death, which I don't know if that's a great way to die. <laughs> or if you're yeah. drunk and belligerent or, you know, out of control, they'll drown you in the water. You know, they'll take you down to their um, watery home. Um, the deep water guy is the Vodianik and the Vodianik is, um, he's more like, he looks like a, creature from the black lagoon i would say you know he's Ooh, he's like shape a, of water yeah and so he um he's the one that the fishermen appease whenever they're going fishing because if they don't make an offering to them he can capsize your boat he can sink your boat he can make you have a terrible fishing day right so um fishermen still to this day will leave offerings tobacco a little vodka you know uh, a, a piece of fish or something to him and ask him for a good fishing day Oftentimes they take the first catch of the day and they put it back in the water for him so that they can have more. And so, yeah, that's another one. So All the right. Vodian Nick. Yeah. I've just realized the time it's been a uh, great having you on. It's been a lot of fun and uh, thanks so much. Is there a website you want to give out or anything? Yeah. People want to find me. Um, they can go to parlor of wonders. It's P A R L O U R of wonders.com. Um, or they can go to Baba Yaga's book of witchcraft.com and they'll go straight to the information about the book on my page. And that will just take them to that page on my site and then they can snoop around and find everything. I've got a, I've got a podcast called Baba Yaga's magic. If people want to know more about Slavic magic, um, it's available on iTunes and Spotify. And so you can find that there as well. So. Well, we appreciate it so much. It's been a great show. Thank you. Uh, Thank you. I hope you roll all crits, you guys. It was so nice talking to gay, to <laughs> D&D guys. It was really nice to talk to both of you and just to have fun talk about this really unusual, these mysteries that exist. Thank you again for having well, let me. Let us know if you uh, have another book in the future, and we'll definitely bring you back on. Thanks so much. Uh, and, uh, thanks, thanks, Jane, Jeffrey. You're Thank welcome. You. Have a great weekend. All right, everybody, you're listening to United Public Radio 107.7 FM, New Orleans. Everybody have a great weekend. Good night, everybody.